Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you open your Bibles up tonight to the book of Micah in your Old Testament? And for the remainder of our time together, we will be in the book of Micah, finishing, hopefully, by God's grace, the book tonight. Our Father, we now open up our hearts. We pray that whatever guards we may have come in with, whatever presuppositions that have been fixed in our minds about you or about this evening or what you're going to be wanting to say to our hearts, that those would be pushed aside, that we would be the kind of people that respond to what the Spirit of God would speak through the Word. Lord, you've given us your mind, your heart, your purpose, your plan. You've told us what's coming in the future for the world. You remind us of how you've dealt with us in the past. And with the past and the future clearly fixed, we want to be responsible, godly, and honoring to you in the present. We pray that tonight you'd show us how. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a golfer who was out on the first tee, and he put his ball up on the tee. It was a brand new golf ball. And he looked at the hole. It was a par three, so it was a short distance. The problem with this par three is that it was surrounded by water except for a little island and a connection toward the back. But if you got it to the right, you hook or you'd slice, it was going to be in the drink. So he was looking at where the green lay and looking at the brand new ball, and he thought, boy, I don't know if I should use a new ball on this shot. Maybe I should use an old ball. So he went, put his new ball back in the bag, got an old ball out, was ready to put it on the tee, when he heard a voice from heaven saying, use the new ball. So he thought, oh, this is terrific, a voice directly from God. You know, i got to just approach this with faith and confidence. So he went and he put the new ball on the tee, was getting ready to swing and hit it. The voice spoke from heaven again, saying, take a practice swing. So the guy thought, okay, well, I can do that. And he stepped back from the tee box, and he took his practice swing, and he felt really good about you know, two voices from heaven, two calls, and, and he took a practice swing. So he goes up to the tee box, after taking his practice swing, ready to hit, and another voice comes saying, Use the old ball. (laughs) You see, his practice swing wasn't all that good. Now, that little joke notwithstanding, we would love if the Lord would speak directly from heaven regarding whatever it is we're needing direction for. Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love the Lord to say, marry that person, or don't marry that person, 
or get that job or move to that city or let this country be your mission field for X amount of years. And sometimes we have that problem in our minds, our hearts, with God. We say, God doesn't always speak directly to me about what His will is. Well, in fact, that's not true necessarily. You see, there are certain scriptures that speak very directly to us about what God's will is for our lives. I can think of a couple. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 3, For this is the will of God, it says. It begins that way. For this is the will of God for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality, even your sanctification, said Paul. So we know that God's will for us, in part, is to avoid sexual temptation, to leave, lead pure lives, and be sanctified, set apart to God. No argument. We know that's His will. He's spoken clearly. Something else we know is God's will. The very next chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So just in two chapters of one book, we've discovered God wants us to be pure, sanctified, and thankful for how He blesses us in our lives. We come now in chapter 6, and we'll get to it in verse 8. We've sung it all night. We've made reference to it at the call of worship, where God tells us what He wants from our lives. He has shown you, O man. Oh, and by the way, uh, we sang two different versions of that, and I noticed up on the screens it said, He has shown these, O man, when it should be, He has shown thee, O man. That is, you, O man, or woman. And uh, it was a typo on the screen. It's because not many people read the old King James Bible anymore, which is, He has shown thee, you, O man, what is good, and what the Lord requires or wants from you, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So we know that's what God wants, at least in part, for our lives, and we're going to cover that tonight. I wonder if that's a big concern to you. It should be. We just assume that if you're a follower of Christ, that you make it your aim and passion to find out what God's will is for you, and you pursue that wholeheartedly. When Saul of Tarsus saw the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, he asked two questions. Who are you, Lord? It's a good question to ask. Some people never ask who Jesus Christ is. You need to have that question answered. Once you have that question answered, however, you need to ask the second question, and it needs to be asked periodically, regularly in your life. Saul of Tarsus said, What do you want me to do? Some Christians lead most unproductive lives because they never get around to asking that question and pursuing God's will for their life. Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your will in this situation? What is your will for my life in the grand scheme of things? And we're told in part 
what that is for our lives. Now, I want to bring you up to speed, okay, where we are, where we've been in the last few weeks, where we are tonight as we close out this book. Remember, there's three sermons that Micah gives. This is the final message, the final or third division of the book. A few chapters ago, chapter 4, Micah begins that chapter by talking about the perfect kingdom, a kingdom of peace, a world without fear. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither will they learn war anymore. He spoke about the perfect kingdom, which would leave the question, when are we going to see that perfect kingdom and how is it going to come? That question was answered last week in chapter 5. If you want a perfect kingdom, you have to have a perfect king. And so chapter 5 introduces the perfect king that is coming. In verse 2 of chapter 5, Micah says he'll be born in the insignificant town of Bethlehem. At least that's when he comes the first time. When he comes the second time, the prophet continues in chapter 5, it will be during a difficult time, a birthing time, he calls it for the nation. Verse 3. When he comes, he will rule like a shepherd rules a flock of sheep. Verse 4 of chapter 5. He will bring a peaceful reign. Verse 5. Through that whole process, he's going to eliminate Israel's enemies, strengthen the nation of Israel. That's verse 6 through 9. And then finally, he will purge Israel of her sin and her bent toward evil through a very difficult time of trouble, the tribulation period. That's the remainder of chapter 5. Now we come to chapter 6, as I said, the third and final division of the book of Micah to the people of Judah. There's something to note about these two chapters. It's dealing with the present, not the future, not the past. So far, he's dealt with both the past and the future. He recounts their past sins. He talks about their future judgment and ultimately the future glory. Now, this is a little bit different, and we notice that with each three of these messages, each one is crafted just a little bit different and has a different emphasis. The emphasis here is on the present. Oh, he'll talk a little bit about the future and a little bit about the past, but the focus mostly here is what do we do now? How are they to live now? So, if you were to look at this last section together, Look at it this way. God speaks, the prophet responds. God gives his requirements in chapter 6. Micah gives his response in chapter 7. The will of God is given in chapter 6. The worship of the prophet is given in chapter 7. The command of God is given in chapter 6. And then the prophet begins to pray and worship and intercede for his people. All of that in chapter 7. Now, it brings up an issue. Whenever there is a relationship with another person, for there to be a true relationship, you can't have a monologue. You have to have a dialogue, don't you, if you're going to communicate to somebody? You can't say, I have a relationship with this person and just talk, talk, talk and never listen to that person. 
So your relationship with God, if you never listen to God, you don't have a relationship with Him. If you never talk to Him, you don't have a relationship with Him. The real relationship comes not in the monologue of one party or the other, but the dialogue between both parties, where God speaks. And as God speaks, it is received and then responded to. And chapters 6 and 7 show a beautiful balance of God speaking and the prophet responding. So, we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. And the familiar refrain of each of the three sermons, Hear now what the Lord says. Let me further paint the picture. As you and I step into chapter 6, we're entering a legal summons. The presentation of a case. So in the first few verses you have God as the plaintiff. He makes his case. Followed by the defendant's questions. The defendant is God's people. They're saying, well now wait a minute. What is it you want exactly? You want me to do this? You want me to do that? You want the other thing? And they will ask a series of questions. What God really wants. Third is the lawyer's close. That is, Micah the prophet acts sort of as the attorney, not that God needs a defense, but he's acting for the plaintiff, bringing the case, the charge against Israel. So you have the plaintiff's case, the defendant's questions, and then you have the prophet, or acting as the lawyer, in his close. Hear now what the Lord says. Here's the plaintiff's case. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against His people. And He will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And now you, and now have I wearied you? Testify against me. Can you hear by the poetic language what is going on in this scene? God is the plaintiff. Micah is the attorney. And the hills, the mountains, the earth, that's the jury. It's fascinating. It's not unlike other prophetic books. If you would just kind of keep your eyes and ears peeled as you go through the Bible, you find that oftentimes inanimate nature is called upon as witnesses. Deuteronomy 32.1 Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth. Isaiah chapter 1, same verbiage. Jeremiah chapter 2, same wording. It's a literary device used by the prophets. It's sort of like we would say, if the walls could talk, if, if these mountains and hills that have attested and seen the faithfulness of God, this land that God has brought them into, if they could talk, they would talk of God's mercy and grace and miracles. So... The jury here is nature itself. Now, as any good attorney would do, he brings evidence. He brings three exhibits. Exhibit A, God's provision. Exhibit B, God's protection. Exhibit C, God's power. So here's what happens. God states his case to the prophet. Now the prophet brings back evidences in this legal proceeding. 
to say, here's the evidence. Now what are you going to do with it? So in verse 4, we have the first exhibit, exhibit A, God's provision. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. You will have noticed by now, reading your Bibles, that the deliverance of the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt during the Passover is the focal point of all Jewish history. You've noticed that. You've noticed that when God wants to attest to His goodness and faithfulness, He'll say, now you guys, remember how I delivered you with a strong hand out of the bondage of the Egyptians? Remember that night when the death angel passed over you and your children and miraculously you were delivered and brought into the land which you now live? So this is familiar ground. As God is saying, look back at my provision. I took you out of Egypt. I brought you through the desert. Oh, and by the way, God didn't just bring them through the desert. His provision was a miraculous provision through the desert. What did they eat every day? They ate manna. And it must have had enough vitamins and minerals to sustain them. Because God says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, regarding going through the wilderness and His provision, He said, while you were in the desert and I provided for you, did your clothes ever wear out? Did your feet ever swell? The answer, no. Now that's miraculous. Imagine having the same set of clothes for 40 years. They would certainly get frayed under normal conditions. They'd fall apart under usual circumstances. That's part of the miracle. For 40 years, God said, I kept you so that your clothes didn't wear out. Now, it's sort of a drag, isn't it, gals? You go to your husband out in the wilderness, Honey, I need a new dress. And he'd say, Honey, it looks brand new. It is brand new. It's God's miracle. Hallelujah. Doctors will also tell us that if you eat the same diet over and over again, one of the results will be because you're not getting adequate variety of minerals and vitamins that your feet will swell. There'll be an edema. God said, your feet didn't swell. You were on them all the time walking in your sandals. I miraculously provided for you. So exhibit A, provision. And I sent before you Moses, a prophet, Aaron, a priest, Miriam, a princess. They were your leaders. O my people, remember now what Balak, the king of Moab, counseled. This is now exhibit B. If exhibit A is God's provision, then exhibit B is God's protection. Because now he introduces a piece of their history when they had enemies around them who wanted to destroy them and how God took care of them from the early days. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Do you remember the incident back in Numbers when the king of Moab, Balak, hired a greedy prophet, a false prophet by the name of Balaam, 
who said, please stand on this overlook and look at this great numerous people called the children of Israel. Please pronounce a curse upon them because I know you're mighty, I know you're powerful, and whatever you speak will come to pass. Well, God protected them because he wouldn't let Balaam utter anything except a blessing upon them. And he was a false prophet. He was not a good guy. Scholars tell us he's a Mesopotamian baru, a priest diviner who would conjure up spells and incantations. And yet God restrained that false prophet from saying anything false against his people and protected them even in those early days. So that's exhibit A. That's exhibit B. Exhibit C is God's power. He also reaches back in their history. Verse 5 also, From the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now the Acacia Grove, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Gilgal is on the western side of the Jordan River. So God took them from the east side to the west side by parting the water, allowing them to go through on dry land like he had done the Red Sea. And so here's God's point in all of these exhibits. Look at your past. Look how I delivered you. Look how I provided for you. Look how I protected you. Look at how my power opened up an impossible situation. The sea opened up and you walked across on dry ground. You got from there to here. That's why I'm bringing a case against you. Because under normal circumstances, normal people would be humbled by that past. Normal people would say, Oh, Lord, I remember and I exalt you. I worship you. May I never forget it. But you've forgotten it. What did Jesus tell the church at Ephesus? When he wrote to them about their erring ways, they had left their first love. He said, Remember from where you have fallen. Any kind of return back to God, any kind of regaining of strength always has to begin with calling to our minds God's work for us in the past. It's good if you stay in touch with the day or the evening you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Get in touch with how you felt right after that, the first few days, the excitement. i got to read my Bible. Now it's, i got to read my Bible. I get to go to church. For some now it's, I have to go to church. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do your first works over again, says the Lord. It was Oscar Wilde who talked about our memories in many of his writings. He said, memory, Wilde said, is the diary we all carry about with us. So from time to time as believers, it's good to open that diary and recount our history. What God has done. That should always bring us to our knees in worship, humility, and in obedience. Now, that's out of the way. The plaintiff's case has been stated. Following this comes a series of questions. 
the defendant wants to know, okay, God, what is it exactly you want? What do you require? What are you getting at? Tell me your will. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Can you see now the response, this questioning about, okay, God, what is it exactly you want? Is there something that I'm missing in my approach to you? Do you require, God, an intensity of worship? Notice the wording in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? Now, to bow before God was an act of worship. But, you know, what if you bow outwardly but not in your heart? What if you're like the kid whose dad told him to sit down and the boy wouldn't? Finally, dad took off his belt. You sit down or I'll give you a whipping. And the boy said, I may be uh, sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That's just a forced obedience. He didn't really want to obey his father. So, is an intensity of worship what God requires? I'm going to bow down before you. Now, with some people, they think worship was good because there was such an intensity tonight in the worship. It's not always necessarily a great gauge. Some people are more emotional and more intense in their worship than others by their very nature and by their very makeup. I've been in prayer with people. And just as soon as I bow my head and I say, Lord, the other response, yes, Lord. And I thought, well, I didn't say anything to agree with yet. How can you say yes, Lord, when you haven't even heard what I'm going to say to the Lord? But it's simply that that person is ready. They're intense. They're emotional. That's a good thing if your worship is intense. It's great if you want to bow before God. It's great if you want to stand before God. It's great if you want to get on your knees before God. Sometimes, however, an outward emotional intensity of worship can simply be a mechanism whereby you're drawing attention to yourself rather than to the Lord. You want people to notice, wow, that guy's worshipful. He's holy. Look. There's an old saying, empty trucks make the loudest noise. Intensity is good if intensity intensity is accompanied with reality. For the Lord's looking for worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Bring in the intensity, but bring in the truth. Next question. Will the Lord be pleased, verse 7, with thousands of rams... 10,000 rivers of oils. Maybe it's not intensity God wants. Maybe what He wants is quantity. I'll do more. I'll bring more. I'll worship more. I'll, I'll give more. 
You know that in the Old Testament there was a king named Hezekiah who brought reforms to the southern kingdom of Judah? And on one occasion, in celebrating the Passover after a great revival, he brought 1,000 bulls to be sacrificed and 7,000 sheep. Man, that's a lot. There was both intensity and quantity. Next question. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? That sounds sort of sick, doesn't it? That's actually a pagan practice that God forbade the children of Israel ever to get involved in. Human sacrifice was strictly forbidden. The pagans practiced it. When Moloch was worshipped by the Moabites, it is said by the historians that the child, a baby, an infant, was taken with parents and by a priest outside the city. And to the beating of drums so as to drown out the cries from the infant, the baby was sacrificed to the god Molech. Hard to imagine how any parent could sacrifice their own baby in the worship of a false god like Molech. Some people think God is austere and demands an austerity of worship. I've heard of people who crawl on their knees for hours, days, till they're bloody. The old monks used to take whips and beat themselves in the back and bleed, thinking that's what God wants, this self-sacrifice. I'm going to cause pain and walk on my knees up the steps to a shrine. Very similar to the ancient prophets of Baal. They would cut themselves on the wrist and jump up in a frenzy. Does God require intensity of worship? Does God require quantity more and more and more in worship? Does God require austerity in worship? No. If God required all of that, we would be in a tough spot. Because we'd wake up tomorrow and go, God, I've got to do more. I, got, I mean, I sacrificed yesterday, but it's got to really be bad and bloody today. You know what God wants? It's simple. Reality. God doesn't require more or severe. Just be real and really worship God in spirit and truth. In fact, God answers the question. And this is now the lawyer's close. God says, no, look, this is so easy, anybody can do it. Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What a courtroom scene this is. The plaintiff says, Have you brought your case? Because I'm bringing my case, and I'm calling in the hills and the mountains as my jury. And I'm reaching back in your history. And I'm asking you to remember your own past how I provided for you, how I protected you. Well, what do you want, God? You want us to be really intense? You want us to give more and more and more? You want us to sacrifice our kids? God says, no, it's pretty easy what I want. This is what I want. First of all, I want you to do justly. I want you just to live right. 
I want you to act in righteousness. Do justice. Now, why did God say that? Because he was dealing with a people group, his people, who oppressed the poor, took bribes, mocked true prophets, and all the while they were worshiping God. They were putting down God's prophets. They were oppressing the poor. And all the while their hands were raised and they were going through the ritual. And God says, you know what? I don't care about any of that. What I want is you to do justice. Live right. Second, love mercy. Why is that in there? Well, back in verse 4 and 5, God gives them a little history of how merciful he was to them. Look how merciful I was to you guys. I took you out of slavery. I brought you into your own land. I provided for you in the desert. And you complained for 40 years. That's mercy. Now, if I, as God, am that merciful to you in your past and in your present and will be, as I've said, in your future, I think you ought to be merciful to one another. Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain more mercy. So based on God's own character, he tells them to be merciful. To be merciful toward a fallen brother or sister or hurting brother or sister is so endearing to the heart of God. He loves it because it's like him. It represents him. In ancient Greece and Rome, did you know that mercy was considered weak You see, really strong people weren't merciful. They made their case. They stated their desires. They got what they wanted. And to be merciful to anyone, one of the ancient philosophers says, mercy is a disease of the soul. They put it down. God raises it up. says, I love mercy. And you ought to love mercy. Because I was merciful to you, so you ought to be merciful to others. Finally, and to walk humbly with your God. Don't just walk with God. Walk humbly with God. God loves humility. He hates pride, right? We know that. God exalts the humble and he puts down the pride. Here's the question. We know what God wants. Do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. How do you walk humbly with God? Are there any key factors that could help you and I increase our humility quotient? There are. Let me give you a few. Number one, prayer. Now, if you just think, follow me. When you are praying to God, you are demonstrating your dependence upon God. Right? I need God. I'm going to talk to Him about this. I am leaning on Him. I am dependent upon Him. When you don't pray you exhibit pride because you are basically saying, I can live my life in my own strength. I don't need to depend on God. Right? Pretty simple. One of the ways to walk humbly with God is to pray to God because it voices humility. It expresses humility. I depend on you. I need you. I lean on you. Number two, worship. Not necessarily quantity, not necessarily austerity, but just pure, simple, from-the-heart worship. And here's why. When you worship God, all the focus is off of you and onto God. It's an act of selflessness to adore our Creator. Number three, not only prayer, not only worship, 
take a task not assigned to you. Now, this is on the human level. Do something on the job that your boss didn't tell you you have to do. Don't say, it's not in my job description. I don't pick up papers. I wasn't get. Humble yourself. Take a task not assigned to you. That's practicing humility. All three of those are powerful, powerful keys into walking humbly with God. I'll give you a fourth. I'll throw this in. Encourage somebody else. Uh, Take the time to stop and just say, you know, I've noticed you. I watch how you work. I watch how you serve. You're doing a great job. Again, the focus is off of you. See, if you walk up to them and say, yeah, I noticed your work around here. Now, when I did that job, you're making it about you. That's pride. And you say, you know what, you're doing a great job and you're trying really hard and I appreciate you. That'll go a long way. Somebody put it this way. A pat on the back, though only a few vertebrae removed from a kick in the pants, is miles ahead in results. And it'll help you and I walk humbly with our God. Now, beginning in verse 9 to the end of the chapter, he does reach into their past and bring it up to the present, listing some of the sins that they have committed. This is the reason for the lawsuit, in other words. The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. This is impending judgment. He says, listen for it, it's coming. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the short measure that is an abomination, they were cheating one another when they would buy and sell using improper measurements. Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you. By making you desolate because of your sins, you shall eat but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread the olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine but not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done. And you walk in their counsels that I may make you a desolation. And your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall hear the reproach of my people. What is he referring to when he mentions Omri and Ahab? These were kings that were once up in the northern parts, up in Israel, the ten northern tribes. Two bad dudes, wicked kings. Omri was the guy who built the city of Samaria and made it a place of idol worship. Ahab brought the worship of Baal into the northern kingdom by marrying you-know-who, Jezebel, who brought in all of those false gods and idols into the land. Well, then you say, why is he mentioning these two kings to the southern kingdom, since that is his purview of ministry? Simply this. The northern kingdom started the idolatry, and you are emulating her. 
You are following and taking the example of what they did and how they fell, and you yourselves will also fall. Now, chapter 7 is our close. Let me give you another visual. Court is over. Micah, the attorney for the plaintiff who brought the charge and made the close, now leaves the courtroom and walks into the lobby of emotion. He gets very emotional now. He's not like a lawyer who said, yeah, we got won that case. <laughs> it's as if he walks out of the courtroom, goes into the lobby of the courthouse, and he weeps, and he responds to what he just said by the Spirit of God. Woe is me, he cries, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. After a harvest, there's not much left on the vines or on the trees. Some was left so that the poor could come in and glean for free. It was one of their rights and privileges. That's how God took care of the poor. But here's a prophet saying, you know, it's as if the harvest is past and there's no ripe good fruit in terms of good, righteous people left. He knows with this indictment and going back in the past and saying, God wants you to be just and humble and merciful. He knows that his people have sinned. So the prophet sort of assumes the confessor role. He is acting on behalf of his people, wailing what he sees in terms of not many righteous people. And so he himself will bring the confession like Nehemiah did. Verse 3, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. The great man utters his evil desire. They scheme together. The best of them is like the briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Does that sound familiar? Sure does. That's what Jesus quoted in Matthew 19 when he spoke of how the gospel will go out through his followers and they will be opposed by normal relationships. Father, mother will hand them over. He's quoting this. So what the prophet is seeing here is that a time in the present and even more so in their immediate future when normal relationships will be so skewed, so messed up, that those who had trust in each other won't trust in each other anymore. You'll hold your mouth. You'll put your cards close to your chest. You won't have the freedom to just be brother and sister and enjoy the freedom of fellowship. You have to parse your words because you don't know who's listening and how it will be skewed and mismanaged. It's how bad they had become. Therefore, says the prophet, therefore... I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. 
That's a good move. When you can't trust men or women, you can certainly trust God. Though all forsake you, God never will. The prophet looks around after the court case and he goes, It's horrible. Nobody's left. It's like after the harvest. Brother doesn't trust brother. Father doesn't trust son. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to look to the Lord. I'm going to wait for Him. It's always best as sort of um, an outlook in life to manage your life by this. God is always trustworthy. Even the closest, nearest, and dearest to you has flaws. You love them. You commit to them. You open yourselves up to them. But they're still people. Only the Lord is flawless and perfect. Now, what the prophet did, they should have done. They failed to do what the prophet now does. They were pushing God away. God said, look what I've done for you. Look what I want to do for you. And they're pushing God away. And the prophet said, I'm not going to push God away. I'm going to invite God in. I'm going to trust God in His infinite wisdom and wait upon Him. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn to Him. Listen to this great story. It could have been one of your shoe boxes. You know those little boxes that you and I do every Christmas and send them out all over the world? Seven million this last year. One of those boxes ended up in a foreign country. A boy received that box. He had lost his parents. He was an orphan. And he was very angry and very bitter. The other kids got the boxes. They were opening them up. They saw little toys and crayons and all the little things that make a child in a third world very happy that somebody loves them. The boy was handed the box. He put his hand out and said, I don't want it. He refused it. And he turned to the one giving the gift and said, I don't want a gift. I want parents. The person didn't walk away with the gift, but he gently kept pressing it toward the child. The child finally took it angrily, opened the box, threw out the toys, very bored, very detached, very aloof. Inside the box, however, was a photograph of the couple that sent the box and an address, name, address, photograph. Eventually, the little boy wrote a letter to the ones who wrote the, sent the box. And letters were exchanged over many months. Finally, after a letter was received by that couple in the United States from that little boy, the couple decided, let's go visit him. They went all the way to that country, showed up, and the boy beamed, was very happy to see this couple because he recognized him from the picture. After a couple of days, the couple, in talking to each other, said, you know, we've been unable to have children. Do you suppose the Lord would want us to adopt this little child and bring him home and make him ours? And they ended up adopting him. And he's now living in the United States with that couple. So here's a little boy saying, I don't want that gift, I want parents. God put two parents inside that box for that kid. 
You, yeah, that's, it's a cool, cool tale. What does God want to do for you, through you, in you? What gift does God have that maybe you're saying, I don't want that? I think our response is, it should be like the prophets. I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes my justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see His righteousness. Can you see what the prophet is doing? He's acting on behalf of his people. Even though he was the righteous man of God who gave the message, he's confessing the sin of his people and he's identifying with them like Daniel did, like Nehemiah did. And he's acting as an advocate for his people, an intercessor, confessing the sin of his people. Then she who is my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Blessing is promised to the remnant of the Jewish people during the Messianic era. The walls will be built again. Judgment will come in the intermediate, but in the ultimate, Jesus Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years as their Messiah from Israel. Now we have said this throughout the prophets, and there is more about that in the future prophets. Why do we keep saying it? Because the Bible keeps hammering on this theme. Now listen to it. God made a promise to Abraham. He's going to keep it. God made a promise to David. He's going to keep it. He hasn't fulfilled it yet. And some people say, you know, you keep talking about a millennium, about a thousand-year reign of Christ. What's the point? Here's the point. God made a promise to Abraham and to David and to several others that He will restore them and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. That has never happened. God will fulfill that messianic promise to His people because God made a promise, and He will restore the people. Now Micah prays again in verse 14. Listen to his petition. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan, a very verdant, lush part of the land, and Gilead as in days of old. You know, one of my favorite images of God in the Bible is Him being a shepherd. I remember speaking on this years ago, and a shepherd from Berlin came up to me, and he goes, You know much about sheep? I said, just what I've read. He goes, well, sheep are really dumb. I mean, they're stupid. And I thought, how brilliant of God. How utterly insightful into our character. 
when he painted the picture of the relationship of a sheep needing the quality care of a shepherd. So David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, if you are a shepherd, you might think, well, that's sort of insulting. That that means I'm a sheep and sheep are dumb. Look at it this way. If you have a good shepherd and you're a sheep, you got something to brag about. If you have a crummy shepherd, you don't have anything to boast about. I know some people that dress their dogs up, like in little sweaters and stuff. I mean, it's really lame. If it's Christmas, they have a Christmas outfit. They have given a little Easter outfit. And they treat this animal like it's a human being, a part of their family. I have some of you giving me angry looks right now. I don't know why that is. Now, on the other hand, you've also seen dog owners, pet owners, who don't take any care. They don't hardly feed them. They ever clean up after them. The dog's mangy, never is washed. Now, if you were a dog, which of those two owners would you want? Okay, and honestly, just say for a day you're a dog. You want to be pampered and given the clothes and the little meals and, you know, you have Fido over the doghouse, you know, and diamonds. But it's P-H-E-A-U-D-E. You know, it's like Fido. It's French, right? You think, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. But if you're the animal, who do you want as your owner? Now you get it when David said, the Lord is my shepherd. He's bragging. Here's why. The quality of the life of the sheep is directly proportional to the quality of the shepherd you have. I'm delighted that the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not insulted by that. I'll admit it. I'm dumb. I need Him. I need His direction. I need that rod and that staff to direct me. Verse 15 is, In the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, out of that... I will, out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Here's part of the promise of Israel, though fallen, being restored, enemies being subjugated, and God being in charge and ruling. Now look how the book ends. Look at verse 18, 19, and 20. There are three important verses. And notice in verse 18 how it says, Who is like, who is a God like you? You know what the term or the word Micah means, right? We've told you in the past. It means who is like you. Who is like God? So this is a play on words of the prophet's name. His name means who is like God. So he asks the question, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. There it is again, that theme. He will again have compassion on us and subdue our iniquities you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. I love that promise. 
And I love what Corrie ten Boom said about that promise. Corrie ten Boom was a survivor of the Nazi concentration camp. She said, when you come to Christ and He casts your sins into the deepest sea, then, she said, He posts a sign that says, no fishing allowed. So you see, you're in Christ. Quit drudging up the past. Oh God, how can I ever forgive myself of what... Oh, get over it. It's under the blood of Christ. Nor should you let others bring it up. It's under the blood of Christ. Yeah, but it's over. No fishing allowed. Yeah, but no fishing allowed. Get rid of the pole. God has been merciful to you. Be merciful to others. God loves mercy and compassion. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham. That is the nation summed up by using those two proper names, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Now listen to this. Those last three verses that you just read, 18, 19, and 20, every year on Yom Kippur, in the synagogues of the Orthodox Jews, the book of Jonah, and then these three verses are read together every Yom Kippur. The book of Jonah, which is a story of God's mercy to a nation and an unmerciful prophet, and then these three verses are attached to it, and it's read as a part of their atonement story every Yom Kippur. Then, on the afternoon of the Jewish New Year, get this, every year, the Orthodox Jewish man will go to a stream of water, typically, which is living water, and empty out his pockets symbolically, turning them inside out, as if to empty sins out of his life. And he calls that the tashlich, is a Hebrew word, tashlich, which means he will cast. The sins are cast away. They've been forgiven. New start. So these three very vital, important verses, God's mercy, God's compassion. So what does God want? More intensity? Okay, I'm going to bow more in worship. I'm going to stand more in worship. I'm going to yell more in worship. I'm going to move my hands more in worship. I'll just keep doing it longer and longer and longer. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Praise you, God. Let's get really... I'll do a whole lot of it. Now listen, if that's in your heart to do and it's really from your heart and that's just who you are, great. But don't do that without the reality of worship. Where you're in a relationship with God, and you know you are when He speaks, and your life reflects what you read and what you hear. A life in conformity to His will. Ladies and gentlemen, God has a big eraser. Aren't you glad? I am. He is merciful and filled with compassion. Go do Likewise. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505 344 3658. 
Thank you, and God bless.